This weekend marks the anniversary of the sinking of the RMS Titanic, the real disaster that inspired the blockbuster film, which inspired that Mythbusters episode where they determined that there was in fact plenty of room on that door for Jack. I'm gonna let go, Jack. Even without the movie, the Titanic disaster has captivated us for more than a century, in part because it was such an intense disaster, but also because the science, the engineering mysteries, and basically all of the unknowns around it created intrigue for decades that only fairly recent technological advances have allowed us to begin to solve. And even then, there are plenty of mysteries and conspiracies that remain. So the story of the Titanic begins long before the night that it sank. The ship was actually notable for a number of reasons prior to its untimely end, as it was being constructed by Harland and Wolfe in a shipyard in Belfast, Ireland. It took about 26 months to complete. At the time, no shipbuilder had attempted to build such a massive vessel before, and it was definitely not easy work. Those who worked on it were constantly in danger, and there were some 240 injuries recorded, 28 of which involved amputations, and by the end of it, six people had died. The name Titanic, which comes from the Greek mythology and means gigantic, was two of three Olympic-class ocean liners. They were all being built by the White Star Line and were meant to be the biggest and baddest and harder, better, faster, stronger of their fleet. These were luxury ocean liners that were basically meant to help them compete with other companies at the time, many of whom they had pretty significant rivalries with because at that point in history, this is the early 1900s, if you if you wanted to travel between, say, England and America, a steamship or a boat in general was kind of the only option you had. So the chairman of this venture, Bruce Ismay, wanted to prioritize size ahead of speed because maybe he was trying to overcompensate for something when it came to building this new fleet of ships. Or maybe it was just his business savvy, because really what he was focused on was making the experience so dope that no one would care how long it took, and maybe by the time they got to New York, they wouldn't even want to get off the ship. So to construct these ships, um, they had a budget of around 300 million in today's money, and this was going toward the Titanic and the uh, other boat that was being built kind of along a similar framework. It was originally just known as number 401 because it was the 401st hull that had been built by Harland and Wolf. So although it was not totally done when it was launched on May 31st, 1911, it still had to get its fitting out and would be done by the following year. It was not christened with champagne because that was the White Star's policy. So you always think that when boats get christened, they, you know, you smash a thing of champagne against the side. This did not happen for the Titanic. Although it was still a spectacular ship, by design, the Titanic was a beaut. She was 882 feet, nine inches long, 104 feet tall from keel to the top of the bridge. It had 10 decks, most of which were really only for passengers of upper classes, and the promenade deck would take them the whole length of the ship, but only if they were first class, of course. 
And a big-ass ship like this needed a lot of power, which the Titanic had. Enormous propellers powered by a low-pressure Parsons turbine and two reciprocating four-cylinder steam engines, which gave it not just oomph, but speed and did so very efficiently. So the steam came from a network of coal furnaces and boilers, which required 600 tons of coal to be shoveled in every day, which somebody had to do, and there were around 176 firemen shoveling coal 24 hours a day. And they actually had 7,000 some tons of coal in the holds because they needed a lot of coal to power the ship. And that then resulted in 100 tons of ash being poured into the sea every day. But the steam that was produced was used somewhat efficiently because there were also condensers which allowed it to be captured and turned back into water so it could then be reused. There were four funnels atop the ship, which you always see in the pictures, but actually only three of them worked and the fourth was totally just for aesthetic. <laughs> so the power generating capacity of the Titanic in terms of electricity was actually greater than many power stations in European and American cities at the time. And due to the location of the generators, the Titanic's lights stayed on until the very final moments before it sank. So the ship was basically as big as an 80-story building. So the question is, how do you drive that son of a bitch? <laughs> well, actually it had a huge rudder, which had its own engines to steer it because it literally weighed over 100 tons. But aside from all of these essentials, the ship had many amenities, at least for the rich people, because the ship had a state-of-the-art heating and ventilation system, but it was only the first-class folks who got the electric heaters. They also had access to a swimming pool. There was a swimming pool on the ship, a Turkish bath, massage and steam rooms, lounges, smoking rooms, restaurants, and cafes. So first and second class was pretty lavish, but actually third class was like not something to sneeze at because compared to what was standard at the time, the quality of the third class experience on the Titanic was pretty good. But third class, unlike the other classes, was kind of interesting because it was divided up into single men and then women and families on opposite ends of the ship. So unlike a lot of other passenger liners at the time, all three classes had decks, dining rooms, lounges, and they were all designed to varying degrees of fanciness. But it was that first class grand staircase that really became kind of the defining feature and the golden touch to this ship. It descended through seven decks, a curved work of art that was basically built from English wood and then capped with a wrought iron and glass dome, which allowed all of this luscious natural light to come in. Which I mean, if you're spending a lot of time like below deck on a boat, it's like any opportunity you have to get natural light is going to be amazing. So at the top then of the upper landing was this gorgeous clock which was recreated for the 1997 film and has kind of been immortalized in that way. Now in addition to all the people, Titanic also carried cargo. So there was of course 20,000 some cubic feet of passenger baggage, but there was also food and cars and artwork and furniture. In fact, there were some very valuable items on the ship at the time that it sank and were therefore lost. One of which was a neoclassical painting that had been valued at over 2.4 million in today's money. So then, having passed her sea trials during the first week of April in 1912, Titanic was registered in her home 
port of Liverpool and prepared for her maiden voyage. Titanic would be heading to New York City, departing on April 10th, 1912. There were approximately 885 crew members aboard, mostly male, and many of whom had actually signed up just a week before. Most were not actually sailors, but engineers, firefighters, stewards, chefs, musicians, and other professionals. There were 1,317 passengers, which was not a sold-out trip, but there was a coal strike at the time that had influenced the numbers because there were many people who ultimately chose to postpone their trip and probably wound up being thankful that they did. There were more third-class passengers, a total of 709, than there were in first and second class combined, 324 and 284 respectively. 107 of those passengers were children. Among those aboard were a number of well-known people, including many who had worked on or been involved in the designing of the Titanic, including Ismay and Thomas Andrews. Among the rich and famous were the Astors, the Guggenheims, the Strausses, who owned Macy's and in the movie died in each other's arms, as well as many writers, artists, and people who were just rich or millionaires for other reasons, usually because they were businessmen or heiresses or part of the aristocracy. One of the survivors, who was an actress named Dorothy Gibson, we will actually hear about in tomorrow's episode, which is part two, which talks about the survivors. So the unsinkable ship departed on time, headed across the Atlantic, going at a southern route to avoid icebergs. But the thing is though, and here's the foreshadowing, is that icebergs drift, they move. And just as the ship was starting to make its way on its 3,000 mile journey, there was a large iceberg headed along a too close for comfort path. Now, the captain of this ship, Captain Smith, was very aware of the fact that the last time a ship had actually hit an iceberg was in 1879. And although that boat had been pretty fucked up, it did manage to stay afloat. But even with that in mind, on April 14th, just a few days into the voyage, the iceberg warnings that they had consistently been getting actually started to really roll in. But the communications workers who were doing the radioing and the telegramming were getting really stressed out because rich people wanted their telegrams. And so they were getting all of these alerts about icebergs and basically telling the people sending the advisories to just chill out. By the end of the day on the 14th, though, the ship had received seven warnings about icebergs. But it wouldn't be until the lookout actually spotted one just before midnight that the ship's fate became imminently clear. Now, first of all, there are a couple of reasons why these went unheeded. At the time, nobody really thought the big ships like the Titanic could possibly be actually sunk by ice. And in fact, it was kind of standard practice at the time, even if the Titanic hadn't had a lot of expectations of high performance on it, that those warnings were usually just taken as like a be aware of this, but don't actually do anything. And the action would only come based on the assessment of the ship's lookout. So therefore, Captain Smith was like, you know what, full steam ahead, we're just gonna like cruise right on through all this ice because it's not gonna be a problem. And that is pretty much how shit literally went down from there. So the lookout was the one who put the next series of events into motion. And the reason that lookouts were so important was that regardless of how many warnings you might have or how many instruments you could use, the best way to spot an iceberg in the middle of the night was just with the naked eye. So lookouts had really important jobs and this one did his job and he 
said, hey, there is ice literally straight ahead, so fuck. And first officer William Murdoch then said, okay, shit, we're gonna try to steer to avoid it, but it was go, but the Titanic was going very fast. And although they tried to steer the ship away from it, they didn't really manage to avoid contact. They weren't able to completely clear the path. And just before midnight, about 10 minutes after the lookout had seen it, the iceberg and the Titanic collided and the ice ripped into the ship's hull. And of course, immediately water began to pour in and the clock began to tick. As it was in the middle of the night and the Titanic was so enormous, panic was setting in, but the passengers were actually largely unaware of it. Most of them probably didn't even feel the impact. But the crew knew that this was not going to end well. And one of the foremost reasons, perhaps a fatal flaw, was down to the lifeboat situation. Investigations and analysis over the last century have frequently cited the lifeboat setup as one of the major fuck-ups on the part of the Titanic's powers that be. The ship had been designed to be able to carry six 64 wooden lifeboats, but it was only carrying 16. This was actually the regulatory minimum at the time, so there really wasn't anything wrong with them doing that, except that that meant they could only accommodate a third of the passengers on board in the event of a disaster, which was happening. It's important to note that no matter how many it had or could have had, the lifeboats themselves weren't actually designed for much more than getting passengers from the sinking ship to a nearby rescue ship. And of course, as people were scrambling into them, there wasn't a ship immediately there to pick them up and rescue them. Although there were ships around, and at least one of them, the Californian, had heard the SOS calls but did not respond to them, it wasn't until the Carpathia did actually hear the distress call and responded to it, or at least tried to set out to respond to it, that help would have been on the way. The problem was that ship was not traveling very quickly and couldn't get to the site of where all the Titanic survivors were trying to survive in these lifeboats that were not meant to be on the water for like four hours well into the next morning. And in terms of making use of the lifeboats that they did have, it was kind of a shit show because the crew had no idea how many people they could safely put into one, which meant that a lot of them were deployed when they were only half full. They did go through the whole women and children first thing, but you gotta remember that this was primarily only first and second class passengers, and not so much that they would have said, oh, folks in steerage can't get on the lifeboat, but because a lot of those people, because they were so far below deck, couldn't even get out of their rooms because it was so flooded by that point. So for the first two hours after the Titanic hit the iceberg, the sinking went along fairly steadily, but then something changed. There was like a literal tipping point, and then things began to speed up. And this is where in the film you get that scene, you know, the one where the whole thing basically splits in half and then sort of buoys up for a minute and bobs there and then sinks straight down. Now at the time, actually, a lot of people believed that it had sunk as a whole, even though there were a lot of eyewitnesses who were like, you know, that actually isn't what happened. There was this really kind of like grotesque breaking of it. But what we do know, and because we have since like found the wreckage and we can attest to this, was that it split into two halves and that actually like both halves sunk and ended up by the time they reached the ocean floor, like 15 miles apart. Now the whole how and the why is really complex, but engineers basically think that if it had hit the iceberg head on, it would have actually been better. It probably could have stayed afloat. It was the way in which it kind of grazed the side that did it in which wasn't how one would have expected impact with an ice 
iceberg to play out in the middle of the ocean, based on interviews and reconstructions and the 50,000 questions that were posed to survivors during the inquiry. The disaster is actually one of the most well-documented in history. Still, there were a lot of unknowns and mysteries and unanswered questions that persisted for decades and that have only been able to be unraveled, not just because we developed the technology to be able to locate at least part of the ship. There are still parts of it that we have not found. And then from there, people have been able to, and they have many, many times. If you even turn on the History Channel once, you see like, there's like 30,000 documentaries about this, but um, being able to reconstruct how the night of April 14th, 1912 played out for the Titanic. Now, some of the unknowns or the unanswered questions actually didn't have to do so much with what happened to the ship and why it sunk, but actually what happened to all the people who didn't get into a lifeboat. So like the real jacks and roses. So it wouldn't have been hypothermia for those who went down with the ship. That would not have been the cause of death, although that is what people believe. Now, it was a frigidly cold night. It was almost what they called supernaturally cold at that point. And many people believe that the people who were dying once they hit the water were basically freezing to death, which is not quite true. Although the water was 28 degrees Fahrenheit, most people, if they didn't die immediately upon impact from cardiac arrest, the shock of hitting the cold water so quickly. Most of them would be dead within a half hour, if not 15 minutes, either because of cardiac arrest or the sudden uncontrolled intake of water, not hypothermia. Of those who ended up in the water, there were only 13 who were taken up into lifeboats. Had more lifeboats turned around and tried to rescue anybody, they had the capacity to rescue like 500 more people. Now, we don't know the exact number of people who died, but it's estimated to be around 1,500. There were 710 people who survived, and they were eventually picked up by the Carpathia once it got there about four hours later. This ship then took them the rest of the way to New York. And in fact, the Carpathia did not have an easy task ahead of them to get to survivors because they had to travail the dangerous ice-filled waters in order to get to them. This region is now known as Iceberg Alley. So that trip to New York took them about three days, and by the time the survivors reached the world already had heard of the Titanic's fate, and in fact, there were some 40,000 people waiting for the ship when it docked at Pier 54. Though it was back in Southampton where the loss was most deeply felt because four out of five crew members had hailed from there. So like most ships of its era, Titanic had been insured and survivors were paid some money. Though around the globe, it didn't take long for charities to begin to pop up to aid the less wealthy of those who had survived the disaster. But since many of them were first-class passengers and did have a lot of money, some of them donated fairly large sums to the Carpathia's crew in order to to thank them for their heroic deed. Now, the British passengers who had been aboard were not able to immediately return home because they were subpoenaed to provide eyewitness accounts by the U.S. Senate's investigation. This was led by a senator, William Alden Smith, who had already been investigating railroad malpractice suits attributed to J.P. Morgan, who had also been a financier of the Titanic. Now, both the U.K. and U.S. inquiries ultimately found that there were several kind of bigger picture problems that led to the sinking, probably the biggest of which was that the regulations for lifeboats were just way too lax. Um, Captain Smith really had not heeded the warnings. The ship had been going way 
too fast in a very dangerous zone and the lifeboats had been improperly used and were pretty inadequate to begin with. Though that being said, Captain Smith had only been following what the established protocol was at the time and he'd acted pretty much in accordance with what a lot of other people would have done in his position based on what was accepted practice. And of course the fact that he went down with the ship probably also contributed to people not wanting to put too much of the blame on him and soil his otherwise pretty decent legacy as a captain. Now the UK largely held the outdated practices at fault and called for major reform. The American inquiry ultimately concluded that the disaster was an act of God. So be sure to tune in for tomorrow's show, which is going to be part two, where we're actually going to talk about what kind of became of the survivors, many of whom became well-known precisely because they survived. But one story in particular of the actress Dorothy Gibson, who went on to tell her story and gave us the first Titanic movie many, many, many years before the James Cameron epic, which she wrote and also starred in. And it was based on her survival experience.